I wanted a place where stories came alive. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton, and you just heard the voice of Marimar Patron Vazquez. Marimar and her husband, Kurt Wooten, founded the Abla Center for Language and Culture in Merida, Mexico in 2009. I first heard about Abla when I was teaching at High Tech High Chula Vista. Every August, some teachers would fly down for the Abla Teacher Institute, and the way they described it didn't sound like a week of professional development. It sounded, well, it sounded like this. I think of so many things when I think of Abla, but instantaneously what comes to mind are colors and just vibrance and beauty. Because it was just a magical time. It was being able to be with colleagues and traveling and it was hot and it was humid. We were like doing this work that was so meaningful and sweating, but like creating together and just like really being vulnerable. I think it definitely took me to another level as not just an educator, but also I think just as a human. There's no air conditioning, you're in the middle of Merida and it's hot and sweaty and everyone's smelling after a few days. You kind of just got to let go and be like, okay, um, we are in this together. If you're in Merida, you're going to feel like you're like in a big hug the whole time because it's so warm there. You're also going to hear the echo because most of the buildings are made out of cinder block and there's tiled floors. So I remember being barefoot on the cold tile, but still warm. And the sound of Kurt and Marimar's voice really resonating in the space. And then when everybody would start sharing out, it was like a cacophony of excitement. And we didn't sound like adults anymore. We sounded like kids. I think of the game Twister because we were doing a lot of human sculptures and just kind of felt like a metaphor for how we were being asked to like stretch ourselves, comfort levels and just the bounds of what we thought teaching could be or how creative and comfortable we are. Like, am I an artist? Well, maybe I'm not, but maybe I am now and maybe I am at Abla. Going there, you could just be your weird self a little bit. <laughs> um, most conferences are usually really rigid. I know this one felt just fun and joyful and dancing and singing and that sort of stuff. One of the things that I remember, and I think it was the first activity, was learning how to observe and see. And by trade, I'm a scientist, so I feel like I'm really good at observing. But we were observing for words and for colors and for images and it really changed my perspective of how we could approach science and science literacy just by using a framing device and looking at the world through this one inch square. I remember sitting on the ground and we were looking at a very specific kind of microcosm of the building and just like zeroing in on one thing and we had to draw it and then we were creating this story. And I just remember sitting on the ground and not only just engaging in that activity, but just really literally feeling everything, feeling the heat, feeling like the dirt on my feet, but like loving it, being next to people while they were creating and just being in this moment of like, wow, we're all doing this because we want to do this and just feeling like really special, but really, really profound. For me, it's funny that it happened like right at the end with the culmination of learning where we did these performances and mine, mine was chosen to be performed and I wrote a story um, about my grandpa 
and the casita that he built us and and the casita became him and he had passed away you know just a few years before and and I don't think I fully processed it and I did that live in front of an audience and my husband was there and we weren't married yet but he got to see me and everyone else got to see me just be super vulnerable and at the same time like right as I broke down the entire community ready to lift me up with their spirits like we were in it together and it was totally unexpected I thought yeah I can get through this I've been practicing my lines and then suddenly it just took on a life of its own and I was like wow what a surprise experience those voices you just heard belong to Nuvia Ruland, Britt Shirk, Mark Poole, and Tere Sesenia Bontempo. I went to Abla the same year as Tere. Like Tere, I performed a story I'd written at the final performance. And, in fact, I also broke down while performing. And while rehearsing. It was an intense week. Hatikai Chula Vista teachers went to Abla in August because of our director, Lillian Sue. Lillian knew about Abla because she got her master's in education at Brown University. You'll understand why that matters later on in the episode. She told me she sent teachers to Abla in order to get their classes on their feet. Literally. What I always appreciated about arts literacy was about how you would engage kind of a wide range of students to really embody text through movement, through really looking at the arts in different ways and thinking about how to provide access points for the wide range of learners that we have. Even at Haitakai, right? We're not wedded to students sitting in rows, right? And, and it's much more collaborative. But for the most part, kids are still sitting. And so I think this idea of like, how do we break out of that? How do we recognize that there are all these other ways of engaging students that can be much more movement-based and kinesthetic? Last month, I sat down with Marimar and Kurt to find out where all this came from. For Marimar, it started right in Merida. Growing up in Merida, I had two older brothers. I'm the youngest of three siblings. I didn't have a room uh, of my own until I was older. And reading for me was just escape to find, to find my own corner where I felt like I was, you know, with me. But the one story that I always talk about is about little women. And I remember, of course, Josephine was my main character. And the reason why I like her is because as many girls uh, my age, and when we were reading that book, it was about writing and it was about independence and it was about having a voice. So I really fell in love with Josephine. And I don't remember if it's in the second book or the third book where she becomes a teacher. So she's writing and then she opens a school. And now is that I'm making the connection about having a space and having a school. And um, so anyway, I went on and I study uh, literature. Mama, I want to stop you because I want to go actually, I want to go way back. I want to go more in depth here, not less. Okay. Is there a first story you remember hearing? Oh, yes, of course. I, the first stories I remember hearing are the ones from my grandmother, from my mother's side. She has this very rebellious spirit. So the way that she would deal with that is just by telling stories. So when we were little, my grandmother, she would bring stories about legends to us. She would always, you know, cover herself with a, like a comforter, like a, a savanna, and she would go and, and just tell stories about uh, animas or souls, as we would call them in Spanish. And she would just, you know, chase us around the house. And Wait, so she wrapped herself in a blanket? In a blanket, yes, in a blanket. Yes, she would do that and chase my two brothers and myself. Just telling stories. But she wasn't like chasing us to scare us, but she was chasing us while she was telling the stories. Wait, she'd tell you stories while she was chasing you around the house? Yes, 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 yes. Outside in the garden, and she would tell legends and say, hey, here's Amisadura calling you where you are, and then she would laugh. It was never scary. 
because she would laugh while she was telling the stories. And the other thing about my grandmother is she was a delicious cook and she would sit with us to eat, but she never ate with us. And not because she, I mean, she had the food and because she would just talk and talk and talk all the way till we finished. And then she would start eating. She had stories at every moment with us. And when we're going to bed, she was an amazing storyteller. Is there a particular story that stands out for you? Oh, yes. You know, she would tell stories about my grandfather and she would tell that my grandfather used to go and, and steal cows. They lived in rural Puebla next to Mexico City. So she would say that my granddad would just go in and find cows and just carry them in his shoulders and just take them somewhere else. And of course, you know, now that I think about it, it's impossible for somebody to carry a cow, but she would just tell stories making people bigger than life. And that was one of them. The other one is the stories about her father, uh, which I found out later in life that he was trafficking alcohol. Well, I don't know if you want to edit that, but she would tell stories about how we'd just leave and then come back with a carreta full of money. And then he would put the money inside the mattress of the bed and how she would just sometimes hide in the carreta and go with him and then getting some money for her and she was saving the money. And then one day the money that she also had in her cushion disappeared because she thinks her dad find out. Or So she has a lot of stories, but the bureau, I mean, I think the point about her stories, Alec, is the fact that it was a combination of real stories with her imagination, which made them so powerful to me. So it was not only about legendas or legends, but it was about her own life and how she saw it and how she chose to tell it to us. Because when, when I was older and then, you know, talking to my mother, I found out about her life and all, all the obstacles and all the pain and the suffering that she had. But that was for me the, the magic. I mean, she would say that she would sneak out of the, the house and sort of like, you know, walk so fast as she was flying to get to the Baile del Pueblo and dance all night and then... She will get back home and uh, she will be like making no, 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 no sound. And, you know, that she would just be the most admired dancer in the Danza del Pueblo. So it was a lot of combination of how she told stories that I think was very appealing to me. So that's what I remember about my, about my grandmother. I'm also noticing every one of the stories you mentioned involves breaking the law or at least breaking a rule. I know. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. I mean, that's I actually never thought about it, but I guess you're right. Uh, and in that sense, I do relate a lot with my grandmother, Trini. Now that you're making me think, you know, thinking, now I see a relationship between my grandmother, Joe from Little Women, and myself, right? I mean, that's the kind of women I guess that I'm, Yeah. I, I hold dear to my heart. So tell me more about the connection you're seeing between your grandmother and yourself now. What, what, are, the, what are the roles, the rules that you guys are breaking? Well, I mean, I don't, she was breaking rules, of course, but it has to be about rules about society, right? And about, you know, the role of the uh, female in a family and the daughter and my grandmother didn't want to get married. And the, why she got married is because she saw a way out of her family by getting married. So what I see is that I grew up in, my, my parents were not as, I mean, they were uh, pretty open, but they were still from a family in the Yucatan. In Merida, it's one of the more conservative cities. But I was the only girl. And when I was growing up, my two brothers, they were allowed to go to a non-Catholic uh, school for boys and girls. And I went to an all-girl Catholic school, right? So it was not that I couldn't do a lot of things, but there was always this difference between my two brothers and myself. And 
there were opportunities that they were given to my brothers as, you know, fairly easy. But then there was, when it was my turn to go abroad uh, during high school, um, I was not going to be able to do it. So I I finally did it, uh, but it cost me more convincing and more doing also going away for college. At the time, people didn't, especially girls, didn't leave their families to go to college. So that was another obstacle that I needed to work on that I, they finally did it. I, I, did, I did my undergrad, not in Merida, but in Puebla. I went to a different state to do that. And then for grad school, I went to the United States. Got it. And that was, that was to Brown, right? I went to Brown, yes. I was doing um, a PhD in literature, in Hispanic studies. I was doing uh, Latin American and Spanish literature. And somehow I felt that for me, I love reading. I, I love uh, writing about stories, but I did love more writing about stories, telling stories. You're feeling like something's missing from it. Yes. No one's wrapping themselves in a blanket and chasing you. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, you, you get it right. Like nobody's doing that because I was pretty much in a, in a library doing work by myself. And in every seminar I took, it's like people don't read, right? And why people don't read? And people are not reading Don Quixote de la Mancha, and they're not reading 100 Years of Solitude. And for me, it was like, well, people are not reading it because you're asking the wrong questions. And we are putting these books in a very high stand or a high shelf so people cannot reach them. So it was that idea that it was disconnected storytelling from community or literature from storytelling. And I always believed that story had a connection with everyday life. I mean, I love 100 Years of Solitude because it reminded me a lot of my granddad and it reminded me of the stories of my grandmother. And that's when I found out about the Arts Literacy Project, which was a project that had to do with education and I had to do with literature and it had to do with theater. And so one day I was invited to a party that it was host at the director's house. And I was not going to go because I had so much to do. And at a point in my life, I, I mean, at that moment, my roommate was going out with a performance artist, Luca, who is her husband right now. Uh, they were going to the party and they say, Marimar, just stop writing. Let's go and meet new people. And that's what I ended up doing. So I arrived to the party and that's where I met Kurt. And then at that moment, he fell in love with me. At that moment, he fell in love with me. You know, how she, she didn't say at that moment, I fell in love with him. No, of course. <laughs> but there you go. So I want to ask you the same question, Kurt, which is looking back on your life, where does this start for you? My parents were both teachers and my grandparents were both teachers and my aunts and uncles were teachers. I uh, never thought I'd be a teacher. I always thought I wanted to be something else, anything but a teacher. And where is this? This was in Evansville, Indiana, southern tip of Indiana near Kentucky. And when I was very young, my mom got colon cancer. And uh, I was two years old, and she died within nine months. And I didn't know this would have such an impact on me. But years later, when I turned 16, my father brought into the room for me a letter she'd written me, really uh, nine months of letters she'd written me while she was dying. Because she wanted me to know her. She wanted me to know who she was. And it was through those letters that I learned and met my mother. I learned who my mother was. Because all I had was very dim memories of her. And it was through her words. Her words were the way that I really got to know her. And, you know, kind of without knowing it, I realized the power of words and the power that words can have in our lives. Why did your dad wait until you were 16 to share those letters? They were brutally honest. She was so honest in how she 
talked about her life, how she talked about what it's like to die of cancer, what her relationship with, with my father was, what her honest feelings were about other people in our family. And I think that it was the right time for me to read it any younger, and it would have been very difficult for me to understand some of those things she wrote about. Difficult at 16, too, I would guess. It was, but I was definitely ready for it at that point. I think he did give it to me at the perfect time. And uh, when I went to college, I studied English literature, just like Mari Mar. Uh, not English literature. She studies, I think, Hispanic literature. I studied the, what was taught at the time was European and American literature. And I became a teacher, went off to teach in a boarding school. And a, a really remarkable thing happened to me, just like Mari Mar talked about getting that little gift of little women. My father, I had never taken an education course because, like I said, I didn't want to be a teacher. And my father gave me three books, and he said, well, you need to read these books before you go teach. And the three books were Horace's School by Ted Sizer, The Unschooled Mind by Howard Gardner, and The Shopping Mall High School. And I read them, and Horace's School was the, – they all had an influence on me, but Horace's School had a really big influence on me. And since I taught in a private school, I could teach any way I wanted to. So I used exhibitions in my classroom of learning where students show what they know at the end of the semester. I've been involved in theater in high school and middle school and college, so I had my students perform. And we created arts installations, art exhibits, performances, and a lot of the ideas in that book, interdisciplinary learning, uh, the student is worker, teacher is coach, less is more, influenced me at a very early age in the way that I taught. And then I went to a Coalition of Essential Schools conference, which was the big progressive education conference at the time and met Ted Sizer, and he said, well, you must come to Brown. He was head of the education department there at the time, so I went to Brown for my graduate degree in education and studied with Ted and took a class with him, and we visited schools all up and down New England together with a group of 10 students, spent a whole day shadowing a kid, and ended up staying at Brown and becoming uh, with Eileen Lande, who founded the Arts Literacy Project. She founded it, and then a couple months later, I was directing it uh, while she was uh, she was my professor at Brown, and she was still running the, the English program there. And uh, I became director of the Arts Literacy Project when I was about 27 years old, 28 years old, somewhere in there. And that, you know, stayed there. And about 10 years later, I met Marimar at that party. So that was the road to get to Brown and to get to progressive education, as we call it now. There's a point that happens that maybe I just missed it, or maybe you just sort of skipped over it. But you go from, there is no possible way I will teach. I'll do anything but teach to, I'm going for my first job at the boarding school. Yeah, I just didn't know what else to do. I started this theater company in my college, and I was completely working on that my senior year. It's called All Student Theater, and it was this massive theater company that's still going to this day. And it was all run by students, and I was just all in on that my senior year. And by the time the production that I was directing, Richard III, was over, I had no idea what to do. So I just sent a bunch of letters out to boarding schools. I remember loving the poet, uh, Dead Poet Society. And uh, I, <laughs> I love that idea of that charismatic teacher, the, the dramatic and the Shakespeare in the room. And so I sent my resume out to a bunch of boarding schools and figure I would maybe run a theater department or teach English and, uh, and figure things out from there. And, and it was really finding Ted Sizer's work, finding the Coalition of Essential Schools, finding that like-minded group of progressive educators in the United States being influenced by people like Debbie Meyer and, and then later Dennis Litke and the kind of really interesting schools they were building and creating and seeing the magic that could happen in the classroom with kids that really, um, really kept me in education, I'd say. 
So why didn't you move to New York and try to be a director? I never, I, I loved doing theater with students. I still do, but I never thought about a professional career in theater. It was never something I really wanted to do. I used it in the classroom all the time, which was the part of the the root of the arts literacy project at Brown. You know, how can we bring performance and theater integrated into the daily life of classrooms? But I never wanted to be a professional director. That was never a path that I even thought about. Why not? Because I wasn't that good. But that's still like, you may well be right about your abilities as a director. But I would say that most people, it takes a few years out in the world to decide you know what? I want to do something other than this. Yeah. So I'm just struck that you, despite the fact that you'd founded this major theater company, you had it so clear in your head. That seems like a, a little bit of a paradox to me that you, 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 you created this thing and you had it so clear in your head. <laughs> That's funny. I can resolve your paradox for you in that think of it as not forming a theater company. Think of it as building an organization which is what I've always done, right? So I built this organization and created a, a structure for it to continue into the future, which it was written into the student constitution at the university, which is why it's still there. It still has a budget. And then, you know, went on to start the arts literacy project at Brown and then ABLA with Marimar. So every stage of my life, we've created something from nothing. And even in the classroom, I feel like when you're with a group of kids, you're building something together. And that's, you know, the difference between delivering information and creating something. If we're all in the classroom, we're going to build something together. What are we going to build? And so I've always directed and I've always done it professionally and teacher institutes are, or professional development for teachers or groups of people really is directing. So you're at Brown and was it after you got there that you found out that this arts literacy project was starting? No, I was a student there and I used theater in my classroom and my professor Eileen Landay and I talked about it often and I left for about three months and uh, we got a grant from the Providence Journal to start an organization. And she had the idea of the Arts Literacy Project and called me up because she needed somebody to run it. So immediately, right after I graduated, I, I came back to run the Brown Summer High School, this lab school in the summer, and, and then all the work that we did outside of that. Um, really, what we were trying to do is look for ways to integrate the arts into reading and writing and literacy experiences. And we were working in the public schools around Rhode Island, Central Falls, and Providence. What was the Summer Lab High School? It's a high school for the teaching program at Brown. So if you go there, if you're an undergraduate or a graduate student in the teaching program, you teach in that summer high school and you're mentored and you teach collaboratively with a group of students in order to learn how to be a teacher. It's free for high school area students to come there for free and to take classes. There are about 300 students there. And what we did is we added on the Arts Literacy Project to it. So we brought professional artists from the community and they partnered with practicing teachers because we really wanted to explore this idea of what are ways that we can bring the arts together with literacy and integrate the arts into literacy experiences. In my head, it all kind of begins with the Arts Literacy Project. You can trace from Arts Literacy Project to ABLA. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a big, big, big part of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And so what was the Arts Literacy Project? Or what is? The Arts Literacy Project, I mean, again, it was sort of how can we integrate the arts into literacy and language experiences? Now, we started off with literacy. And Eileen Landig will always tell this story. She said, you know, she'd sit in the back of the classrooms and see so many kids that are bored. Her job was uh, teaching teachers. And she thought, isn't there a better way to get students more engaged 
in the reading process? And what if we brought professional theater actors in and had them partner with teachers? What would happen? Because theater folks get text up on the stage and they bring it to life. So how can we bring text to life in our classrooms? And that was the sort of impetus behind the project. We partnered with two theaters in town, the Providence Black Repertory Company, the Trinity Repertory Company. And their artists taught with our teachers, both at Brown Summer High School and then in the public schools during the school year. And it was really a laboratory trying to figure out what can we learn, you know, and then later on, a few years later, we wrote a book about it. And I ended up working with a colleague in Brazil, Daniel Suarez, and uh, he had a school down there. And we ended up sort of setting up an arts literacy lab school there in his school. And, and his school was specifically on, focused on teaching language through the arts. So we we set up in Brazil and this cross-border, cross-cultural, cross-language work became really interesting to me and to us. And it was in that context that I met Marimar. I was actually planning on moving to Brazil and working with Daniel at his school. And uh, Marimar and I had dreamed up Abla in that moment and said, what if we built Abla in Merida and Marimar was teaching Spanish at Brown. And what if we had it be a Spanish school and the International Education Center, a community center? And that's when we dreamed it up together was in, in Providence. Not at that party, though. <laughs> Not no. at that party. No, it, it took us uh, another couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say it was... A few more weeks. No, we, we planned over the year. We sort of dreamed about it over the year and then moved to Merida about a year and a half later and, you know, started looking for a building at that point. And, and that's the beauty about stories and about when you share stories, right? Like they become alive. And, and even though I know, I know this story, I know Kurt's story, right? Like listening to it is always about making connection and what has happened since that makes you look back. So there's no what I'm saying is because I think it was we we met in a moment where we were looking for something else. I mean, Cor was definitely in education, but he was getting more into Portuguese language and Latin America in that sense in Spanish. And I was in a moment when I knew I didn't want to be an academic and I have great respect for academics and for the work they do, but I didn't want to be an academic. The best moment in my graduate program was the moments when I was teaching and also was the gatherings of, I put together a poetry reading at Brown. And it was because we felt, or I felt the need that a lot of us were writers or a lot of us wanted to share things that we read out loud in a gathering. So we started an event that it connected people from, um, you know, education, but also people from the comparative lead program and from the Brazilian and Portuguese studies and from the English department. And then, you know, you will see engineers coming to that gathering to share stories, to read aloud and to, you know, share the work, our original work in a very safe space, right? I mean, not only about criticism and not only about saying is this good or bad, but it was about just sharing what we had inside of our heads and our words. So I guess, you know, when we met at the story, we both were ready for something else, or we both were ready to maybe take our interest in a way that connected more to what we wanted to do to a future plan. So I went to the party. Yes, I went with uh, my roommate, Julia, who is, she was doing, she was in the same department doing the graduate program, and now she's teaching Spanish. So we get to the party, I get there with Julia and with Luca, and I, I think the, the three of us didn't know anybody. and. 
the energy of that place, of the people that were there was so different from all the parties that I've been to at Brown, but it felt, you know, very, the music, I mean, it was not like I was entering a place and I was just listening to music that didn't connect to me. They were playing fojo and Brazilian music, and it was a very diverse group of people. And what I mean diverse, I mean, it was not only like graduate students from Brown, but it was people who were doing very interesting work theater people, teaching artists. And so I get there, I'm thinking that the director of the project is, you know, this, I don't know what I thought, like I thought more like about a professor of mine, maybe like an older professor. And then I met Kurt and I don't know, in the first minutes he asked me to dance and he asked me to dance for So that was, I think, the moment when we were able to start talking and get to know each other and and him and the people that were there were sharing music, were talking about Brazilian music and Maria Rita and, and projects that we wanted to do. And that's when, you know, I think that's when everything started. Right, Kurt? Yeah, a funny part of the story, though, is that I, I asked her out to dinner and she said yes. <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I said, well, I got to go to Brazil for a few weeks. So. <laughs> so when I get back, can we go out to dinner? So I was leaving for Brazil in another day or so. Yeah. He asked me to say, hey, do you want to go out for dinner? And I said, well, yes. And then he's like, well, I'm leaving for five weeks to Brazil, <laughs> like in two well, days. I don't think it was five weeks. We, we still argue about how long uh, that was. I think it was like two weeks. I think it was five, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> so an undisclosed period of time passes in which Kurt is in Brazil. He comes back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys go out to dinner. And dancing. And dancing. <laughs> and dancing. Merengue. Yeah, we went to Dominican club. Wow, this is like you guys are. We've already had two <laughs> completely different dance styles from from different countries. This is like intense. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, merengue is easy. If you, if it's the easiest one. <laughs> <laughs> he played it safe. <laughs> so we've had all these different pieces here. There's the poetry reading that you set up. There was the lab school and the bringing theater people into schools. There's all these pieces. There's the there's the setting up the school in Brazil. There's the working with emergent bilingual students. I can see all the pieces of what's going to become Abla have sort of appeared at different points. Who said, "Hey, we could we could do this. We could do this in Merida." I mean, I never thought of coming back to Merida. Once I left, I thought that I was you know I was never going to go back. And that's that's one of the questions that I get asked a lot, right? It's like, well, you went to the United States and you were studying there. How come you came back? And it's, it's been a question that I, I encounter again and again and again and again, because you know, you're talking about Mexico and somebody goes to, to do something in the United States, people usually stay, right? So it was that sense of, you know, he wanted to go to Brazil. He was about to move there for a year. And I was about to finish my program and just kind of knowing that what I needed to do is, is apply for a job in academia, but really searching for other things to do. And I think at that moment, it made sense to come to Merida. Core wanted to have an experience outside the United States. I Merida seems a place where we could open something, you know, and my family was here. And of course, we were, you know, we're about to get married and maybe thinking about a family. So it sort of makes sense to be here, you know, close to my family to help with everything, to be close to the grandparents. And also I was kind of done with being where I was in the United States. And I was missing things that I didn't quite understood when I was living in Mexico. And I was missing more of that family and, and, and the parties and the music. And, and of course you have court that had all the educational background 
And I wanted a place where stories came alive. I mean, that was for me one of the biggest things uh, that I was craving. And, and I mean, it's also, I think, one of the reasons for the name that we chose. But it was that idea of, of stories coming to life and, and finding or, or understanding that are, it's, for me, it's, it's a key. It's an essential part of who we are as a community and as human beings. So how did you guys find that incredible space? Carter has always had that visual idea, you know, in terms of space. And, and, and I was looking for me for something that, you know, will have spaces where people could gather. So we, we were in a rush. We wanted to do things right. We had a year to think about things and talk. And we came, you know, we were in Merida. And we were looking for spaces. And we went, I don't even remember how many houses we went to see. And every house we saw, there was, it was either too small or too close to something or didn't have a garden or there was all these different things that were looking to find a place. And I don't know, maybe a few months into the search, I was looking through a newspaper and I see a picture of a house that I knew that it was close to where the house where I grew up. And I remember looking at the house and telling my mother and saying, hey, uh, mama, this is uh, Marisa's house. Uh, they're selling it. So my mother says, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to call her. And she calls Marisa and Marisa said that the house, it was like a few days in the market and it was already promised to somebody and they already signed the, the promise of sell. So I never, I didn't say anything to Kurt, but like in the back of my head, I was like, that was the perfect house. He had like a big garden and, and this beautiful house from the fifties and in a great uh, uh, location in Merida. So I didn't say anything. And I think it was about another maybe five months that passed or six months. And Kurt and I were in a wedding. We were not in Merida. And I get a phone call from my mother. And my mother says, like, you know what? The promise didn't go through. So Tia Marisa called me and said that if you want the house, this, it would, this was a Saturday. And we were leaving to the United States on the Monday after. Right, Kurt? And we were in Mahawal. We were south of Tulum. Yeah, we were in a... We were- in a tropical we were celebrating storm. a friend's wedding and there was a tropical storm. So I get that, the phone call and she says, well, Marisa says that, you know, you can come see it. And if you want it, she'll give it to you and it will be everything more, more direct. So, you know, I'm like with Corden, I said, this is happening. I think you're going to love the house. And I knew, I mean, it just felt like it was the perfect house. So we were there, you know, we went to the wedding. We came back to Merida on Sunday and we went to see the house. And where Kurt saw the house, it was like, this is the one. And, you know, there on Sunday, we say we want it. And we left and we came back, I think, a week or two weeks after that. And we signed the papers and that was it. It was just, it was what it was meant to be, that house. That's awesome. I know. It was lucky. So you now, you guys now run the ABLA Center for Language and Culture. Talk me through everything that ABLA <laughs> does. <laughs> Oof. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, you know, we had a vision before, like, so working with the Arts Literacy Project at Brown, Brown doesn't give money to you to do something like this. You do have to raise money. And I spent, you know, a good deal of time writing grants and trying to keep our budget going every year. And I knew we didn't want to do that. So we knew we wanted to build certain different aspects of ABLA that could all operate independently, which is one of the reasons why it does so many things. And it consists of several different areas. One of them is the actual language school, which is two pieces. One is a local language school for kids and adults that want to come and learn language through the arts. We also have Spanish immersion school, which really came out of Myanmar's teaching Spanish so well at Brown to students, which is where people fly in from all around the world to do our Spanish immersion program. Sometimes they stay here for a week and sometimes they stay here for months. 
we luckily we started doing that online three years before the pandemic. So we were already teaching online for three years when this all started. So during the pandemic, we've taught everything online. We moved it all online. So that's one aspect of it. Another one's the teacher training teacher institute. So we have our own teacher institutes that we host at Abla, which as you know, Alec, you've been there. <laughs> but we also have teacher institutes, one in Chicago. Uh, we're partnering with High Tech High on a teacher institute this summer with deeper learning. Um, and we offer these kind of collaborative teacher institutes in New Orleans, really all over the United States and even all over the world. And so there's the teacher training part of it. Another part of it's the study abroad programs. Universities or even high schools partner with us where they bring students for a week, sometimes where students come for a semester or a year, to study with us at ABLA. And that's often a partnership between us and the university where combination of our teachers and their teachers teaching together in various configurations and doing work in the communities or working with our artistic community partners. And I would say the last thing I can think of right now are our after-school programs, which are community programs. And those consist of things like Brain Smart Arts, which is arts classes for local kids, uh, maker spaces for kids. And even recently, we were doing a speakeasy, which was an open mic night once a month free for the community. I think that covers it, Marimar. Did I leave anything out? No, I think you got it. I mean, the way that it helps me think about it is a place, I mean, I don't want to say like a tin tank, but it's a place where great colleagues and great people come and think about projects that had to do with education, language, arts, and culture. Mm -hmm. And that is like crossroads for that for me. It's very important. But it's always that has to do with language, education, arts, and culture. But a lot of things have, have come to Abla out of people just creating together and coming together to offer experiences. And for me, that's also what it's all about Abla, a space where, where everybody together creates an experience that has to do with those four things. That's what it helps me to think about Abla because now, you know, no, that's a nice. you know, like the speakeasy, it came out of two of our teachers that are, were part of Abla and... So I think that gave us that the structure that we that we put or how it was, you know, it was not a school. It was not this. It, it gave us flexibility. Uh, but for for me, those are the four pillars of, of ABLA. That's really helpful. Which programs keep the lights on for you guys? I would say it's a combination of all of them. But perhaps most strongly, it's people coming to ABLA from different countries to learn Spanish um, because that's going on all year long, every week of the year study abroad programs and partnerships with university that are ongoing that happen every year uh, are a big, big strength of ABLAs. I would say those are the two biggest things because they happen all year long. But there's also the spiritual energy we get from yeah. stuff too. I mean, you know, like from the speakeasy, which was one of my favorite things that teachers put together. Some teachers at ABLA, Ian Wiggins and Sophia and some others decided that they wanted to do a speakeasy, this open mic night every, and it became an extraordinary space for people in the community gathering to share their stories and poetry and their artwork and performances. And it happened very organically. Uh, and the Teacher Institute is, is one of my favorite things, which is a week every year where teachers from all around the world gather together to go through an experience together and to meet each other and to share ideas. And just seeing the mix of languages and the community of people that come together for that every year, it's really exciting for me. Yeah, I love that. I got to say that that's when you get so many different people you get from kids that are, um, you know, they come to Abla for our creative space summer camp and you have adults and re retirees uh, learning in Spanish. And then you have the study abroad college students and then you have like the speakeasy 
that happens around the same time. And sort of all those energies that happen at Abla, I just, I think it's, it's just what it really makes the spirit in the heart of Abla. And that's what my mom says. She always says, like, I love it when the building's hum, humming with action and people. And, you know, you'll get those local kids in the same room as, as with, you know, some teachers from, from Spain. And, you know, you get this mix of people. It's so exciting at Abla to see, you know. If I went into a language immersion program, would it look like Abla to me? Is like how how consistent is it across the thing, and how much is it like? Well, this is this thing, and this is that. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, uh, now I'll say I think it's it's very consistent, and I think uh, there's a, a philosophy, there's a methodology, there's uh, you know certain key elements that we put in each program. But it's also a lot of, of the beautiful, the amazing people that work with us that, you know, bring their own passions to the program. So I think uh, definitely, I don't know if that makes sense, but I think definitely, you know, in every, in the programs that we do, you, you, you'll be able to see it now more than ever. Yeah, I think it's, I would say seven years after we started Abla, yeah. I would say the culture of Abla took hold. And what I mean by that, I we we sat down with our teachers about that time, and a lot of and I used to really go. We used to both go into cl- teachers' classrooms and observe them and give them feedback. We got a lot of young teachers, so we'd have to grow them, and the methodology was so strange to a lot of them. Uh, so you know, exhibitions at the end of the semester and things like this. So uh, we did that a lot at first, but then about seven years in, we had a professional development session, and we said, like, what are the words that you would use to describe Abla? And the words that they came up with, even with a lot of new people in the room, were so consistent and so beautiful and so much represented what we did that it was around that time that we felt like the culture of Abla has really taken hold. And we started to get new teachers. And because we'd had so many experienced teachers there for so many years, and because there was this shared sense of what Abla was, we started to get this shared culture in all of our programming. And I agree because every teacher that has been there is in some way still connected to Rabla, like uh, with projects or conversations or so I believe that now I believe that is very transferable. And one thing that I saw it is now that we went online, I wasn't thinking about even doing immersion online. You know, we continue with the class and group classes and maybe around September, we started thinking of putting the immersion program and I see now the immersion program online uh, and it just has the same, the same, you know, feeling. You're not in Medit, of course. We're not serving food, but the way that the class and and and, and the, the the themes and the the way that it's structured and how is you know we're building community and how we're telling stories and how we're sharing stories and ending with a final event at the end of the week. I could see that that was also happening. Not necessarily because I was there, you know, doing the program, but it was for the teachers that put it together and. And I just, and also with the teacher institute, when we put it online, for me, that was a moment when I saw that, yeah, you could see Abla at that moment. I think it's a real generosity, is what I would say. It's a generosity between teachers and between teachers and students and students and teachers. Like people are very generous with each other at Abla. They give of themselves to each other. And that's a really beautiful thing to see. When a new teacher comes in and they don't understand this idea of an exhibition or planning backwards, other teachers will step up and just really work with them on their curriculums. And it's a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you guys so much. 
Well, thank you. It's always thank a you for it. This this is really wonderful, Alec. I'm so glad that you had us. Uh, I know we don't get to do this with each other very often, so it was it's, it's amazing to hear from from each other what <laughs> what Abla is. Uh, but it's such a pleasure to talk with you, especially you know high tech high we we value so highly. Uh, it was one of the first schools I've ever seen where, you know, I, I went to a lot of those progressive schools in the coalition days and in those sort of 70s and 80s, let's say. And they all did a lot of hands-on learning, but they all missed the aesthetic part of it, the art part of it. And I was so impressed at High Tech High that they not only had the hands-on part and they were wrestling with intellectual frameworks, which I love, but also everything was so beautiful. The students really cared about creating great work and they took pride in their work in their school. And that was a beautiful thing to see. And so, so happy to be working in this way with with High Tech High uh, on all these different things we're working on. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Perfect. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Take care. High Tech High Unboxed is hosted and produced by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. This summer, for the first time ever, Abla and High Tech High Graduate School of Education are running a four-day workshop together. It's called Found Beautiful. It runs from June 15th to June 18th. It's all online, and you can register at hdhgsc.edu slash events slash found dash beautiful. There's a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>